So we're continuing to look at Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth. And while there were some churches who Paul wrote to, like the church at Thessalonica, who Paul could describe as an example to other churches, Corinth wasn't one of those exemplary churches, was it? Because here was a church with divisions and problems with pride and people evaluating one another on external stuff like image or spin. And there was sexual immorality going on in this church and people insisting on their freedoms, even if that trampled on other people. And alongside that, there was a disregard for the poor. And if that wasn't enough, in chapters 12 and 14, Paul is dealing with the self-absorption of their faith, that they are using spiritual gifts to draw attention to themselves. And so chapter 13 that we're looking at today, interestingly, wasn't written originally for young, hopelessly in love couples who are getting married so that they can have something beautiful read on their wedding day, was it? Chapter 13 is sandwiched between these two chapters where Paul is tackling the Corinthians' attitudes to their God-given gifts and abilities and talents, and how they are using those to compare themselves to each other. And yet, in talking about love, Paul isn't just addressing their attitude to gifts. He is also addressing, love also has something to say about all these other issues that they are facing. And that is why you and I need to hear this chapter just as much as they did, because everything they faced, we face. Our societies, even some churches, are increasingly divided and proud, and people evaluate one another based on image and spin, and people insist on their freedoms, even if that negatively impacts other people. And people can say that they are people of faith, but if you look at what they say, what they think, it seems a pretty self-focused faith. And there lies a problem. Because if love has something to say to all of those issues, arguably we are living at a time when we are more confused than ever as to what love is. I mean, the Beatles sang, all you need is love. But what is love? I mean, if you look at Hollywood, love seems to equal sexual desire or sexual chemistry. Or look at the public square and love equals tolerance. In fact, not just tolerance, but celebrating someone else's lifestyle choices. And not to do that is said to be unloving, or even worse if you express it, hate speech. But is that what love is? Well, Paul gets to all of that, but he starts further back. Our first point then, the measure of a life. Now, how do you measure someone's life? 
I mean, how do you measure the value that someone brings to the table? Well, in Corinth, they were valuing themselves and each other based on the presence or absence of certain gifts like speaking in tongues. And if you had this gift, your stock rose, and if you didn't, your stock fell. But think how that can happen today, and not just in churches. We tend to evaluate people based on their giftedness, don't we? The actor, the pop star, the celebrity, the academic, the entrepreneur. The more gifted you are, the more successful you are, the more stand out you are, the higher you are esteemed. And alongside that, character seems to have come to mean less and less. I mean, in the realm of politics, we are told that someone's private life doesn't impact on their ability to perform their duties. And so what we're doing is ranking gift, or the word the Bible uses for that charismata, charisma, above character. And Paul says, Yes, and giftedness is the wrong yardstick. It is the wrong measure to use. Look at verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, are there any noises that really get on your nerves? You know, my watch died recently, so I'm using one of my girl's cast-off watches. The problem is it was cast off for a reason. It has this really loud tick and it drives Sue mad. For me, I can't bear the sound of somebody crunching an apple close to me. Or as a family, we'll all complain if someone drops a baking tray in the kitchen and everyone goes, oh, I can't bear loud kitchen noises. And Paul is saying, hey, listen, you can speak in tongues as much as you like, but if you are devoid of love, you're no better than a noise that gets your attention but does nothing else. In fact, the word he uses there for noisy gong was the word for a kind of first century metallic sound amplifier, a sort of first century megaphone. In other words, you can be incredibly gifted, you can be incredibly talented, and everyone else can recognise that about you. But if you're using that gift or living your life without love for others, you're just like a megaphone, drawing attention to yourself. Hello, look at me. Life's about me. Look how gifted I am. Now, hopefully you would never do that and you would shrink back from that. But look at verse 2. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. So what Paul is saying isn't just true for the spectacular. It's also true for these things. You can be very insightful. People can say that you're spiritually sensitive. 
people can recognize your insight. Or you can be highly knowledgeable, you've always got the answer. You can be academically brilliant, top of your class, Nobel Prize stuff. You can even be strong in faith and everyone look up to you or to your family as spiritually having it together. And Paul says, yeah, but if you have all of that, even all of that, without love, then the bank account of your life isn't full, it's empty. In the spreadsheet of heaven, the angels don't look down your column and go, ooh, isn't she talented? They go bankrupt, nothing there. You can even live a highly sacrificial life and it count for nothing. Verse three, if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now, if someone literally gave away everything they had and said that they were doing it for God or for the poor, they would earn some kudos, wouldn't they? Or if someone was martyred for the faith, they'd be recognized as a hero of the faith. And yet, Paul is saying, you can do those things and there be no real love for God or others in those actions. Because in reality, you can be doing them for yourself, to be seen, to be applauded, to be praised by other people, or even to gain reward in heaven, to be praised by God. So, to use a crude analogy, God's measuring stick is not marked with centimetres or inches of talent or success or giftedness. It's not even marked with centimetres or inches of sacrifice. It is marked with centimetres or inches of love. In his kingdom, it is always character over charisma. But that begs the question, doesn't it? What is love? Second point, the nature of love. And Paul doesn't give us an exhaustive description here. What he does do in verses four to seven is paint a picture of what love is in action and attitude. And he starts off by telling us two things that it is, then he moves on to what love isn't before going back to what it is. Verse four, love is patient and kind. Now, if you ask my girls, what does dad, your dad need to grow in? They would almost certainly say patience. But Paul would agree, wouldn't he? And not because he knows me, but because he knows that we all need to grow in patience. Because while there is a right desire that the precious resource of time is not wasted, there is also a wrong impatience that says that my time is more important than your time, that says I take priority over you when it comes to time. And Paul says, in contrast, love is patient. Now there's a cliche, at least in Christian circles, that says true love waits. But that's true, isn't it? True love does wait. Lust doesn't. 
Lust wants it now. Lust is impatient. Or that willingness to use others to get ahead, to get what you want out of life, that also doesn't wait because it's in a hurry. It wants success or advancement now. Or think of a superior attitude, you know, someone who might have a superior attitude to those less able or less gifted than you. Such a person also doesn't wait, do they? They're not patient. They want this other person, this person less able than them, out of their hair as soon as possible. But Paul says love does wait. It's patient. It is willing to have its precious resource of time taken up by the one it loves. And it's kind, he says. Now, kind can sound kind of weak and limp, can't it? I mean, someone can give you something that you don't really like and you say, well, that was very kind of you. But listen to what Paul writes to Titus. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us. So the kindness of God, that doesn't look weak or limp, does it? The kindness of God looks like the Son of God giving his life for those who are unworthy of it. So if love is kind, like God is kind, then love means going to the bottom to lift others up. It means expending yourself to see others flourish. It means risking your comfort, maybe even your life, to see others come into all that God has for them. Okay, but then Paul tells us what love isn't. Because sometimes when you're defining something, you need to say what it isn't, what we're not talking about, don't you? Verses 4 and 5. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Now, back in chapter 8, Paul took aim at their overinflated view of themselves. And he said, there is a kind of knowledge that puffs up, but love builds up. And here he's saying it again, isn't he? Love does not draw attention to itself. It doesn't boast. It doesn't elbow its way in, whether that's in church saying, you're not letting me use my gifts, or in conversation, I demand to be heard. Instead, Paul says, love does not insist on its own way. Now, certain people in Corinth were insisting on their own way. But that's not a problem reserved for Corinth, is it? I mean, think today how we can mistake self-gratification, getting what I want, and mistake that for love. And we love this person because they tell me what I want to hear, or they give me what I want, or they fulfill my needs. And we score their love on their willingness to give me what I want. And Paul is saying, no, true love is never narcissistic. True love never has itself as its focus. Okay, but if love doesn't insist on its own way, neither is it resentful, he says. It doesn't keep a count of wrongs. But you can, can't you? And in a marriage, you can. Some couples do. 
And when they do, it's terrible. And one partner does something wrong and out comes the list. And ghosts of the past can stalk a marriage because they're never laid to rest. But Paul is saying love doesn't keep score. Now moralism does, whether secular or religious moralism. Because moralism tells you you should forgive this other person because you are better than to hold a grudge. You're better than that because you're better than them. But what's that? That's just pride, isn't it? And you don't really forgive. You keep it there, you hold it, you've got it in your notebook. So that if necessary, you can use it in the future and bring it out against them. You've got something to hold over them. So if we are to forgive and not to keep score, we need something, not that will make us proud, but that will humble us, that will tell us that we too could have our sins counted against us. But we don't, they're not being counted against us. But we also need something that gives us a security that means we don't have to hold something against someone else to use in our favour in the future. And in Colossians 3 verse 13, Paul says, Forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. Now just imagine the list of all the wrong things you have thought and said and done, and all the good you haven't done. That list that God could keep against you. That list that would grow longer every day. But at the cross, Jesus steps in and he takes the blame in our place. And your list was and is wiped clean. And when you know that, it humbles you because you realise you don't deserve to be treated like that. But it also gives you a deep security because you know the cross tells you your heavenly father loves you so you don't need to hold some ammo in your back pocket to use against others in the future now the problem is you could hear all of this you know that love is kind and doesn't insist on its own way and doesn't count up wrong and think ah so love lets everything go and if you think about it, that is how our current culture tends to think of love, that it's not loving to tell someone that they're wrong. But look what Paul says in verse 6. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Okay, so love does take sides, doesn't it? It takes sides against wrongdoing and for the truth. It is not a non-judgmental tolerance of all things. Love does make judgments. Now, if you recoil from that, just think of being a parent. Any parent knows that that's right. I mean, you might find a parent somewhere who says, well, we need to let little Johnny find out for himself what's right and wrong, but push them and any parent worth their salt would not rejoice when their child's life was being destroyed by drugs or drug pushers. No parent would do that, would they? 
No parent would rejoice if, the, if their child's life was spiralling down into a life of crime. No one in their right mind would wish that for their child. Why? Because the parent loves the child and because love always wants the best for the one that it loves. So instinctively you know that love judges between good and bad. B.B. Warfield, the great 19th century Princeton theologian wrote, he who loves men must needs hate with a burning hatred all that does wrong to human beings. And guess who he was talking about? He was talking about Jesus and how Jesus was angry, furious at death or hypocrites or corrupt rulers or Satan. Why? Because if you genuinely love people like Jesus did, you are going to hate what harms them. You're going to come to some moral judgments about things. There are going to be some things that you oppose. You're going to say of some things, no, that is bad. So love is not just being nice and non-confrontational. Love is not being English. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing because it sees the root and the fruit of wrongdoing. It knows where it comes from and what it leads to. So love can never rejoice in that. But that begs another question, doesn't it? How do you decide what is harmful? How do you decide what's wrong? How do you decide whether this is something you should rejoice in or as our current culture has it celebrate or whether it's something you should rather oppose? Well, to answer that, you've got to know what the point of life is, don't you? I mean, whether something is harmful depends entirely on whether it helps you achieve your goal, your end in life, what you're here for. And of course, atheism and secularism can never help you answer that question. Because if they're honest, they'll tell you that there is no ultimate point to your life. But the Bible can and does answer it because it says, no, your life does have a purpose. Your life does matter. You are here for a reason. Your life does have a goal to live for. Third point then, the end of life. Look at verse 10. When the perfect comes, and the word Paul uses for perfect comes from the word telos. It's you attaining what you are made for. It's the goal of life. It's your raison d'etre. But what is that? Well, before Paul tells us that, he says that between now and then, between now and us achieving that, all of these spiritual gifts that the Corinthians are measuring themselves and others with, all those spiritual gifts are going to pass away. Verse 8. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. 
So these gifts that they're making so much of, or that we might make so much of, are transient, but love isn't. They end, but love never does. Verse 9. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Gifts of tongues and prophecy and words of knowledge, they're partial. They're not the full. They're given to help us reach the goal. They're not the goal itself. And to drive that home, Paul uses two pictures. And the first is of a child growing up. Verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. So this present life is like being a child compared to what is to come. And in this, our childhood, God gives us these spiritual gifts. But the whole point of childhood is you don't stay there. You grow up, you achieve maturity, you become an adult. So Paul gives a second picture, verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. And in Paul's day, you didn't have mirrors like we have them now. You had a piece of highly polished metal. And if you looked into it, you saw, but you didn't see. You saw your reflection, but you didn't quite see your reflection. Was it your reflection? Yes, but no. And Paul is saying that is what this age is like. You see, but not perfectly. You know God, but there is so much more of him to know. You experience him, but there is an infinite well of him still to tap. You enjoy him, and yet his delights are endless, and you have only just begun to taste them. It is in the age to come when we will see face to face. And that is what the perfect is. That is what the end, the goal of your life is. That's what everything in your life should be pointing to and preparing you for. That is what decides whether something is right or wrong, good or bad, helpful or harmful, that one day, the day you die, you will see God face to face. Because in the Bible, that's what face to face means. It means to intimately encounter, to meet with God. Jacob wrestled with the angel of the Lord and said, I have seen God face to face. Gideon saw the angel of the Lord and cried out, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. It was said of Moses that God spoke with him as a man speaks with a friend face to face. And so to know God face to face is to experience him for all eternity and to find him infinitely loving and lovely, that we will love God and enjoy him forever. 
That is what you have been made for. That is what it means to be human. That is why Jesus so loved us and gave himself for us. That is why love will never put itself first, but always seek to encourage others on the way to that face-to-face -face encounter. And it's why we will not rejoice in anything that robs someone else of that or puts that in peril. Verse 13. So now faith, hope and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. We will spend eternity trusting, putting our faith in God's infinite goodness. We will spend eternity in hope, knowing there is no end nor limit to all of his goodness. But above both of those, we will spend eternity marvelling at the Lord Jesus, who would love people like us, who would give up everything to rescue people like us, because he loves us. Let his love so change your heart that you become a person of love who loves with humility and with courage.